0: Second Samuel 11, verses 1 through 3. Let's stand as we read God's Word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Jacob, or Jacob David, sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Ramah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That concludes our passage. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words and think through what happened with David, and then what flowed out of this moment, consequences to David's life, his family, other families, Father, we pray that you would help us to be sober minded as we think through things like lust this afternoon, morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when we think about what we've been covering over the last few days and weeks, we are... See, I'm doing it again. Over the last few days. Let me start again. As we think about what we've covered the last several weeks especially last week in 2 Samuel 7, which I said was the high point of the two books of Samuel, where God promises to establish David's dynasty forever, we saw how ultimately this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? A descendant of David. And from that pivotal point, many of the chapters, including chapters 8 and 10, chronicle various wars and battles that David fought as he expanded Israel's territories and brought peace to the kingdom. And I would have actually covered chapter 9, but that is about David's kindness to Mephibosheth. And Dave, David, and I use that particular story so often in the Lord's Table as such a wonderful expression of God's grace uh, to, to us sinners who are really foreshadowed by Mephibosheth, who says... Who am I? A dog to eat at the king's table. And so we often use it at the table. So I thought I would move on to this chapter, chapter 11. And we read those events where David is staying home from the battle. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Why is he home from battle when all of the men are out? And normally he should be out there as well. And he gets up from his couch and he goes on the roof, that's not a problem, that's typically a place in ancient Israel where you would go and, and either bathe or sit, it was a, oftentimes the cool place to be, not cool as we would say today, but cool as in temperature. And it's there that he is scanning around, even that, not bad in and of itself. But what flows from that and what he lets his eyes gaze upon and continue to look at and then launch into action is not okay. And We'll we'll see that as we go. Now, knowing that we have a mixed audience of adult and child today, I'll be talking about this subject a bit generically, but I encourage you to continue discussing this important topic with your families this week. And what we see, see, what we see happening here in Second Samuel 11 is a man in a powerful position who believed that he, he could have anything he wanted. And sadly, this thought of entitlement, particularly when it comes to lust, doesn't just happen with powerful, influential men. Way too many men think that their passions are simply too strong. Too imaginative to be controlled, and that lust is just a part of what it means to be a a man. And that's a serious misunderstanding, because God called Adam to lead, and therefore at the heart of what it means to be a man is this mentality of leadership, a leadership of self, a leadership of home, of church and state. But all of that is on behalf of the, the true leader, the chief leader, that is Jesus Christ, and the word seduce is made up of two parts. The first part is the Latin root word duco, which means to lead. But the prefix say means apart or away from. And so to seduce means to lead away. And what we see is we combine that concept with, with man as a leader flowing out of Adam's calling is that to seduce means to lead this leader away. And he is led both by the seducer and by his own lusts. And to me, that's the opposite, actually, of what it means to be a man. Those who think that they are potent with regard to lustfulness are in reality losing their masculinity and in the process, as the Bible would put it, they are losing their strength. Proverbs 31, three says, Do not give your strength away. Don't give it to women. Your way is to those who destroy kings. It's a very appropriate proverb for David, who was king of Israel. I've mentioned lust already a few times, and that is an uncontrolled desire for something, and it need not just be lust in the context of Today's passage, it could be a lust for money, a lust for power, and so on. It doesn't just affect men, it can affect women as well. But of course, our passage today is speaking of a more earthy lust, and so that is what we'll be focusing on. Proverbs 5, 8 through 9 says, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others. So we saw that you give your strength away. Here we see you give your honor away. Proverbs 7, 6 and following. Say, for at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Now, young men... I want you to hear this from Solomon. So this is Solomon speaking. It's not me necessarily speaking from the pulpit today. It is Solomon saying, look, I have I've looked out and I've surveyed the city, and I see these young men. And so many of them lack sense, he says. They pass along the street near her corner. You hear what he's saying? They are setting their path in such a way that they end up here, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, time when they think they will not be seen. Time of night and darkness, he says. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. with her smooth talk, she compels him, and all at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter. I'm to remember this proverb I'll finish it here in a second, but remember this proverb as Solomon is describing a young man who is led away, seduced by his lusts, engaging them in a time and a place where he thinks nobody sees, nobody knows, and it doesn't just have to be, you know, Solomon's context obviously is out in the town. Please don't limit it to that. This could be the person out, you know, you're out in the town on the internet. And Solomon says... As an ox goes to the slaughter, or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. That does not sound good, does it? As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Solomon is saying this is serious. And how is the lustful man described in these Proverbs? His lacking sense, he's compared to an animal, uncontrolled, led away. He's not exercising the leadership that God has called him to, not only over his own life, let alone any, anywhere else, but instead he is being led to the slaughter. He is a prisoner. And these are not positive descriptions, and I don't think any of you would want to think of yourself in this way. So why do we have such trouble with this area in our lives? Why are we so often seduced by various lusts? Well, the Bible is clear enough about the topic. Who can't quote at least the sense of Matthew 5, 27, where it says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'You shall not commit adultery.'" But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. We also know the solution that's given in Colossians 3.5. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And notice that the Bible does not say that we are to put to death biological desire. Rather, we are to put to death evil desire and impurity before we become regenerated we are dominated by these evil desires. And when the old man is crucified with Christ, that dominion is, is gone. It's removed from us. But that doesn't mean that desire is gone. Christians still find themselves often doing corrupt things with their earthly bodies. And Paul says, keep putting that to death. Walk away from such things. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And the Apostle Peter adds this in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. So obviously, these, these lusts, these passions are waging war against us all the time. We must be vigilant. We must be vigilant to address them. They come from within ourselves. They seek to reign over us. And the more we feed them, the more they become like a fire that is out of control. And we're told on the one hand, that if someone consistently gives way to these lusts, loving them, then the love of the Father is not in him. On the other hand, we are told that if he denies that he has such lusts at all, then he is self-deceived or a liar. So God calls us to be honest. He calls us to be realistic about the struggle with the flesh. But he calls us to fight. The enemy would like nothing better than to cause you to fail, just as King David And before I use that passage to talk about some practical ways to work through that real conflict, let me just reference a chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 13. We won't read it today, but I'll just summarize it. It's a chapter dealing also with lust. In this case, it's David's son, Amnon. And like his father, Amnon gives in to lust. And the outcome is enlightening in that we are told at the end that Amnon comes to hate the object of his lust. And the story ends with this comment in verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Now that may seem like a strange passage. But think about what happened to Amnon once he fulfilled his lust, he ended up hating the object of his lusts. Why? Why did that happen? That is an important question with an important answer. And here's the answer. when lust is fulfilled, it is revealed for what it is. a controlling evil desire, that is ultimately unsatisfying. And when a man is seduced by his lusts, he feels the shame at the realization of being the sinful animal that he is. And rather than hating himself, he often hates and blames what he perceives to be the cause of his downfall, which is the woman, much like Adam blamed Eve in the book. Of Genesis and I mention this because the first practical help that we can keep before our minds is the remembrance of what happens when we fulfill our lusts lust demands from a finite object what only the infinite God can provide And when we discover that these finite objects can't satisfy, we end up hating them. And as Proverbs 27.20 says, hell and the grave are never satisfied. And never satisfied are the eyes of man. And if we can keep remembering the times that we hated ourselves and others at these times of fulfilled lustfulness when we realized these things about ourselves and felt that shame of self-discovery, it will help to remind us of what will happen if we continue to pursue that path. And you children may not understand this lesson yet. And I hope that you will not have yet seen the ugliness of fulfilled lust. Instead, listen to Proverbs 20, verse 11. Solomon says, Even a child makes himself known by his acts by whether his conduct is pure and upright. You can understand that point. People can tell the type of people you are by the things that you do. Proverbs 3.35 says, The wise will inherit honor... But the fools get disgraced. So, children, if you are wise, you will inherit honor. The fool, on the other hand, is ignorant of or ignores the future consequences of his decisions and actions, and he gets shame and disgrace. And realize that your choices affect your reputation. Your future choices will affect your reputation, the reputation of those in authority over you, your parents, and your God. So listen to counsel this morning. Even if you don't fully understand what's being talked about, realize how important it is to remain pure and exercise self-control. A second practical step is found later in chapter 11 of, of 2 Samuel, right at the end of verse 27. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David acted upon his lust that we read about in verses one through three, and because he did so, he displeased God. So, the second practical step here is this failure to gain control over our lust through the strength of the Holy Spirit will result in either discipline or judgment. Listen to First Thessalonians 4, 3, or read it there behind me. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And that's an important part, that last one. He who does not work to control his lust disregards or rejects God. And God will judge, discipline that individual. Why is lust a form of disregarding or rejecting God? It isn't just that giving into lust is disobedience. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what God is saying in that is that this contentment This joy is a product of knowing that God will not leave us, He will not forsake us, that He will provide us sufficient grace for each day, He'll provide us strength in that moment to work through everything. And lust as a form of discontentment is a rejection of what God is sufficient in. That's why it's a rejection of God, because it's saying, I want to try to fulfill this. Remember what I said earlier? A finite object cannot fulfill what only an infinite God can provide. Well, when you are discontent, you are not looking to God for that source of satisfaction. So the first step was to remember the ugly, empty results of fulfilling our lusts. The second is to remember the sufficiency of God and how he will judge and discipline sin when we reject him. And third, look at this proverb, Proverbs 5 15 and following. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers. With you, let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So Solomon tells us that contentment involves not only being satisfied with God, but also satisfied with what he has given us, in particular, our spouse. Here, Solomon is talking to his son, so it's his wife. Could be a wife content in her husband. Or for those of you who are single, a future wife or a future husband. And David, at the time of our passage, had several wives. And yet, as we read in verse 3, he still was not satisfied. And so he inquired about Bathsheba. And I alluded to this earlier, I applied it by saying, what is he doing at home away from battle? What is he doing up on the roof scanning the city, letting his eyes fall upon Bathsheba? To have gotten to the point of asking about her meant that he entertained the possibility that she might be for him yet another wife. Not only that, he disregards the answer that he has given, namely that she's already the wife of another man, Uriah the Hittite. And men, you must be content with your wife. You must be a man of one woman. And I would argue to you that you know with the rampant problem that we have not just in the mainstream church in all of our churches in our church, the problem that we have with so many men in particular and i and I keep saying men, but I don't want to exclude women, but the problem we have with this Rampant, sinful use of the Internet is that we are not content to be one-women-men or one-men-women. And instead, we look upon these on the Internet or in a magazine rack or whatever it is, And the people that do so think they are away from the eyes of their spouse or their future spouse, their children or other people that he may know or she may know. But the reality is, God says, be content with your husband, your wife. This woman, this man that you are looking at is someone else's husband, someone else's wife. And while you may think that you are away from the eyes of others, the Lord sees all things. And listen to that, please, just as Solomon who looked out and and looked at that young man who was kind of lurking in the shadows, going out at twilight in the night and the darkness, thinking that he was outside of watchful eyes. There is no place that we are secret from the Lord. He knows what we do. And then a fourth practical step is found in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Paul tells Titus that the grace of God, particularly that given through the Word, teaches us to deny these worldly passions. I think implied in that is that you are already at a weak place if you are not saturated with God's Word. Because it is God's Word that teaches you how to deny and avoid that lust. So a good question for you is, are you a regular reader of God's Word? Are you saturated in the truths of the Gospel? Fifth, we must avoid opportunities for lust. We're not given the full details of David's situation, but I doubt that David was ignorant of the details of his. I'm sorry. I doubt that David was ignorant of the vantage point of his roof, is what I should say. Clearly, the roof gave visual access to all the other roofs around him. I don't know for. Sure, about the architecture of ancient Israel, but it's possible that his roof was perhaps a little higher, being the king's palace. And it wouldn't have been the first time, it's not as if David went up on his roof and said, oh, I can see everything. No, he'd been up there many times before, Right? He's not guarding his eyes. He's not, as Job said once, making a covenant with his eyes. He's looking around, gazing around. And what does he see? He sees Bathsheba. And I want to suggest to you young men and young women, but really all men and women, we often give the excuse that it was in that moment that we were carried away by our passions or by our lusts. But there's usually a path that takes us there, right? And obviously, I think if you ask most people what happened in there, the percentage of the time that you were successful in making the right decision, the answer is usually, well, majority of time, and I would argue most of the time, the answer is no, I was unsuccessful. And kind of a disbelief always. I just don't understand what's happening. I keep getting in this position and I just never make the right decision. Well, it's not just about that momentary decision. It's about everything that led up to that decision. And being in a position in which you had to have that in the first place. And the reason why it's so difficult in that moment is because you've already made a myriad of decisions leading up to that place. You've already decided to click on that, what they now call clickbait at the bottom of that article that you are reading, and that started you down that path. It's the path that you go where you start wondering, am I alone? You know, it's it's all those little things that lead together, or even sometimes the patterns that you know take place, that bring you to this point, Right? the times when you're feeling frustrated the times when you're feeling you know the opposite sometimes the times when you're feeling excited and celebratory over something you know the patterns in your own life and where it takes you and instead of addressing those patterns you engage in those patterns and so by the time you find yourself at that point no wonder it's 90% of the time that you make a wrong decision And so we have to we have to slay the dragon a long time before it grows into the dragon. And that may mean keeping laptops out of bedrooms, it may mean pl- not placing yourselves in isolation with those of the opposite sex. It may mean keeping bedroom doors open to the family. It may mean computer screens turned towards the hallways. It, may mean having accountability partners. It may mean all kinds of things. Those are all great things. It may mean filtering software. It may mean avoiding certain sections of stores. It may mean giving passwords to others. It may mean sacrificing our favorite television series that you enjoy because it often displays provocative material. It may mean not just surfing Google all the time and reading the Quora articles or going to the particular types of articles that you know has all the clickbait at the bottom and continuing to scroll down, right? You know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about because I'm bombarded by it every day. There are endless opportunities to seduce you by your lusts. And many of you have found that you are horribly weak. Horribly weak. Turn to the Lord for strength. Six. if you unwittingly find yourself in an opportunity for sin, maybe, this is one of, one in 20, right? One in 100. Where you suddenly found yourself unwittingly. There, maybe David went up to his roof completely innocent, emotive. Maybe he was just surveying the beauty of the city. I don't know why he was. Maybe he was sick. We could come up with a, with a dozen reasons as to why David was in this moment at this point in time so what should he have done when he saw Bathsheba? <laughs> right? That's what he should have done. How do we know that? Because we have an example of another man earlier in the account of Scripture of Joseph who did that very thing. But what does verse 2 of our passage says, say? And the woman was very beautiful. That is a subjective assessment of By David. Implied by that is that David did not avert his eyes. He committed and continued to look and watch. He did not make a covenant with himself. Instead, he beheld her beauty, and that led him to ask about her. Bad, 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 bad. (laughs) You know, you as a third party outside going, no, David, no, 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 don't do that. You know, it's bad. And yet... You men and women know yourselves in that situation. That's why you hate the object of your lust because when you look back at it, back in hindsight, you go, I'm such a fool. I'm such an animal. 1 Corinthians 6 18 to 19 and 20 say, Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Of all the sins that we commit, the type of sin detailed in 2 Samuel 11 is against the body. Why? Because he who sins with the body unites the temple of God with the temple of Satan. And if our bodies are to be dedicated to the Lord as the temple once was, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, then we need to think of sin as vandalizing God's property. And fleeing from unrighteousness is only half of this sixth practical step. You can't just run away from the opportunity, and then contemplate lust from a distance. That's not the answer. Because all that does is draw you back to the sin or prepare you for a later moment. Instead, you must run towards righteousness. Please hear this. You must replace... The discontentment of lust. The rejection of God with contentment of something good. In other words, don't just flee away from lust. Flee towards prayer. Flee towards Scripture. Flee towards better things. The fellowship with God's people. Whatever it is. And so as a summary, lust is a desire for something that controls us. It leads us away and into sin. And being led away is very opposite, especially for men, of what it means to be a man. God called Adam to be a leader, even in the face of temptation. And the Bible describes such a person as being a dumb animal and a fool. And the practical helps were to remember that finite objects can never satisfy what only an infinite God can of fulfilling our lusts is a form of rejecting God. It's a form of discontentment that God will discipline and judge. That we are commanded to be satisfied with the wife of our youth or faithful to our future wife or husband. We must read Scripture more, for we are told that the Bible teaches us to deny worldly passions. We must avoid opportunities that will produce temptation. And we must flee towards something better. And I wish it would be enough to simply hear those words today and say that you agree that we must control our lusts and that God is angry at sin. But the demons, when Christ came, confessed that the Son of God was there. And they were terrified by the fact that He was about to judge sin. And we don't want to just have that as describing our Christian life. We don't just want knowledge and acceptance and acknowledgement of truth as being what it means to be a believer because Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. The demons don't obey. They just await judgment. But if you love God, If you truly love Him and are His child, you will hear what the Scriptures say this morning, and you won't just acknowledge the truth of them, you will say, that must be true in my life. I must be vigilant. And what it means is that you must be willing to give up the idol of self-fulfillment, self-exaltation of pleasure. Whatever it is that we would describe that idol as being, whatever that idol is offering you in your life, whether it's comfort, or pleasure, or any number of things, you must be willing to say, it is more important to me to love God than to love my." sin. The world tells you that your lust is an acceptable sin. And as a consequence, lust and being controlled by lust is one of the greatest challenges that men and women face in today's society. The world goes on to say that you should recognize all of that as natural. It absolutely is. That's what Romans 1 tells us. It's natural to the flesh. But the world says indulge that flesh. That's not what God says. And if you're not just convinced by the truth of what God says, then hear and see the consequences that flowed out of David's sin The prophet Nathan came in gentleness and meekness and told David a story about a lamb. Now friends, I don't know when this is. It's sometime after the events that we just were reading in our morning's passage. Most commentators believe it was after David and Bathsheba's child was born. If that is true... That's at least nine months that David has walked in the thought. Nothing was ever found out. I'm sure his mind is hard to turn to other things. How many times have you indulged in your sins over and over and over again and then just move on? But here we have, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich men had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him or with his children, used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, you could almost vision like if they had turn this into a little animated cartoon. Here's the lamb on his lap. It's a cute little lamb drinking from his cup, eating from his plate, right? It's really meant to be drawing on your thoughts of oh, what a precious little animal this is. And it was like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, I know some people in my city who treat their pets like their children, like their son or their daughter. I can't believe that that would happen. Right? David is, is is he's walking along in this story. He understands. He goes, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. I cannot believe that this precious animal, this pet, this daughter was ripped from this poor man's grasp and possession and sacrificed when he could have used his own sheep from his herd. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. And because he did this thing, because he had no pity, he deserves to die. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave, you into your, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. Wow. Now, we don't usually stop at this point. And we'll move on from here in just a second. But look at what... God is saying to David, remember what we just learned last week. Remember how David motivated to give praise and worship to God because God says, no, you shall not build me a house, but I will build you a house. I'll build you a lasting dynasty that will never fail. And David says, who am I that you should be mindful of me? But then God reminds him also, I anointed you king. I protected you. I delivered you. And as we start to think of these things, we realize what has God done in our lives? What could he be saying? What could be the list that he says in your life? I anointed you to be a king or queen and a priest of my heavens over the nations, I anointed you and appointed you to rule over the angels, I gave you an inheritance alongside my son, I forgave you your sins so that instead of spending an eternity in hell, you will spend an eternity with me. I gave you a wife. I gave you children. and We could make the list voluminous, can't we? All the things that God has given to us. I have made every promise that I've ever spoken to you out of the covenant that I've made with my people, I've made them yes in Jesus Christ to you. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more Why? Because you've already inherited the earth. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? And then don't, friends, don't go, well, of course he's speaking about now the murder of Uriah which, by the way, was one of David's mighty men. Uriah, who had given his, sacrificed the potential of his very life many, many times for David to protect him. Oh, when, Dave, when God says, have I not protected you from Saul? I wonder if David in his mind is thinking, yeah, and you used Uriah as one of your instruments. Uriah, one of my closest friends. But don't go in your mind to going, okay, well, this is really about murder. It's part of it. But you've also taken his wife to be your wife. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. If David only even knew that the neighbor would be his own son It'd be his son Absalom, but fulfilled this part of this. You did this secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. These are severe consequences. And it's to our great shame, I think, to think That our own sins, our own repeated pattern of sin as we engage in lust is so much less than this. That God really doesn't look at it in the same way, with the same hatred of that sin, with the same despising of the fact that we keep retreating to our idols and keep trying to fulfill our, our, our desires in finite things. That we keep being seduced. But God sees that just the same, friends. And there will be consequences. God knows our sin. He judges it. He tells us that engaging in lust is all of these things. Coveting the possessions of others. And notice David's reaction. He cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. If you have found yourself led away like an ox, if you have found yourself in the position of the fool, confess your sin before your God. Confess your sin before your God. Because God is gracious. And even as he told David... You shall not die, for I have put away your sin. And that is the good news. You do not have to die for your sin. God has put it away in the cross. God placed the full judgment of your sin, including the sin of lust, upon the back of His Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, you must turn from your sin. It is not enough to just keep fulfilling the sin and then going back and saying, God forgives me. God will forgive me. How many times is it even in your mind where as you contemplate sin, you know ahead of time, well, God will forgive the sin. I'll go ahead and make this decision, but God will forgive it. Friends, That is part of what Paul means when he says in Romans, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? What is his answer? God forbid. No. The right response of a true believer says, I want to hate this sin as much as God hates it. And so it is a constant, even if you fail, even if you do sin, it is a constant turning away. It is a constant attitude of a hatred of sin. And God speaks to you today in Isaiah 51, and He says, Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. Thus says your God. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of my wrath. That is the good news for sinners like you and me. And remarkably for David... Remember how we read last week that God's covenant was that it would endure even despite the sins of David and his descendants? Well, here's the proof. In the face of lustful adultery and then of murder, God forgave David because David was truly broken over his sin. Consequences, yes that's the reality of our sin but the important news was that God forgave David and he will forgive you too praise be to God that he does that let's pray Lord God you are the merciful holy forgiving God you've taken the cup of wrath from before us and you have made us your own Lord God, I just ask that you would help us to have the same hatred for sin as you do. I pray that we would realize the patterns that we find ourselves in and the thought progression and that we would be willing to start the process at the beginning of dying to sin rather than putting ourselves constantly in the position where we know we are weak where we've already given in in a several, many important ways so that by the time we come to what we think is the decision that we've already given our answer. And So Lord, I pray that you would be with us, be with this church, help us to be a people of pure heart and mind, that we love you more than anything else. And Lord, we ask that you would make us a people that are strong so that we can speak with a powerful testimony to our own society. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.